I would like you to imagine a hypothetical situation between a husband and wife in which every night as they retire to bed, one spouse leans over to the other and asks this question. Are we married? And the spouse looks around and says, well, that picture on the wall would seem to indicate yes. And that ring on your finger would be another form of evidence. And um, I don't know who you were with on the honeymoon, but that sure looked like you, right? So are we married? Yes. And then the spouse then asks again, do you love me? And the spouse goes, of, uh, of course I love you. Would we be here? Um, Of course I love you. So that's a a normal sort of back and forth between a husband and wife. But imagine if that same set of questions happened every single night. Are we married? Yes, honey, we're married. Do you love me? Yes, honey, I love you. Imagine that sort of question and answer Every single night, at some point, the one who's being asked the question is going to feel what? Exasperated. Because implicit within their spouse's question is a certain level of suspicion. Suspicion that this union that they have with one another is not legitimate. Suspicion that the love that the other one may have for them is somehow contingent upon any number of things. And at some point, that person is going to look that first person in the eye and say, yes, we are married. Yes, I love you. Can you stop berating yourself? Stop fixating on whether or not we belong to each other. Could we just get to the work of what it is to be married? Could you stop incessantly asking me whether or not I love you and could we just maybe just love each other? I know it's a, it's a nutso sort of experiment, a nutso sort of a hypothetical situation, but but you can hear that, that kind of suspicion between two people and, and you can wonder what's, what's really beneath that and, and wonder whether or not that sort of love that's supposed to exist between a husband and wife is ever going to flourish when one person is always questioning whether the other one's union to them is real. In that back and forth, in that hypothetical situation, it's the, it's the one being asked the question that's saying this, will you have faith that we belong to each other so that then you can commit to what it means to be married. Not to be continually asking yourself whether or not we are together. When Paul speaks in Ephesians 5 of marriage being a perfect picture of how Christ loved the church, he's in some ways saying that's precisely what it means to know him. To know that that kind of love is abiding And it's not to be held with suspicion. And it's not to be continually questioned. It's about being trusted in. So that then you might commit yourself to the love and commitment that that union entails. And so in the same way that 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 spouse looks at her questioning spouse in the eye and says, will you please just have faith that we belong to one another, that you might commit yourself to me in love and not being worried about everything, Paul is actually saying to us in this letter, would you please have faith that we belong to one another? And from that trust, then you obey. I'm going to give you the punchline of the passage we're looking at right now. And then I'll tell you the joke.
what Paul is trying to tell us, both in this letter and specifically in this passage, is this one thing. Faith alone obeys aright. That the only way to obey as he intends for us to obey is to believe, to trust, to have faith that we belong to him already and irrevocably. And until you and I believe that in an abiding way, we will always obey, obey in a way that is beyond what he intends. Faith alone obeys aright. And that, you might say, is the whole theme of the entire letter. And that's why Martin Luther was heard to say a long time ago, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Well, consider yourself about to be beaten over the head with it again so that you and I might learn that faith alone obeys aright. Now, I have just given to you an example, an illustration that I think makes pretty intuitive sense. Because if you're married, you do not want your spouse continually asking yourself, do we, are we married? Do you love me? It makes intuitive sense to put forth that principle. But the question is, is that really what the gospel says? Is that really what the Bible is teaching us? Is that really what Jesus has for us? I'm, I'm here to make an argument from what Paul's argument is that says that that illustration is not just similar, but it's parallel. And so I think we're going to have three reasons why it is true that faith alone obeys a right. Three reasons. One, it's the only way of maturity. Two, it's the only way of consistency. And three, it's the only way of escape. Maturity, consistency, and escape. We're going to listen to those first 14 verses of Paul's letter to the Church of Galatia in chapter 3, and we're going to let assistant pastor and church planting apprentice Ben Seneker come read that passage for us. So if you're able to stand, would you stand to listen to Ben read? This morning's passage is from the first 14 verses of chapter 3 in Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed to be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. You may be seated. If you were here last week, then you may remember that uh, at the end of chapter 2, Paul gets into some pretty thick but not impenetrable theology there. And you have to see that theology, though, in the context of his own heart. Um, because if you notice there in the first couple verses of chapter 3, he, he, he comes up and pokes them on the shoulder again. You, you foolish Galatians. You, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Um, uh, when we began this series, I, I gave you the illustration of, of having a glass of water and a glass of Clorox bleach on the same desk. And if you let a four-year-old walk by there, water and Clorox almost looks indistinguishable from one another. But to drink one is nourishing and the other one would be toxic. And for you not to take an interest in them, not even getting close to that choice, would be an abdication of your responsibility and an abdication of love. And Paul is saying to these people, these new fledgling Christians in Galatia, you are being presented two things that have the appearance of similarity, if not slightly indistinguishable from one another, and yet one could not be more apart from the nourishment of the other. And that is why he has to get in their face and say, you, you foolish Galatians, who, who has bewitched you? He is, he is livid. You don't write letters like that unless you are livid. And it, if anything, you might, you might compare it to, to like a mom who, who, whose kid has driven the car into a fire hydrant. She is understandably livid. Now, it could be worse. It's just a fire hydrant and the front end of the Mazda. But she is in that moment full of love and anger, and it's roiling. And that's where Paul is here. But why why is he livid? Because the Galatians had come to believe in a risen Jesus. They had come to believe that this Jesus had come to prove to everybody that the grip that death has on life has been loosened. Because surely if this God-man would rise from the dead, from the dead that death has somehow been changed and that by having trust and faith in him, one is reconciled to God, one is part of a new era, one has a new destiny, and, and that's what the Galatians got. And that's what they embraced, and that's how the church formed. And yet, in time, another set of voices walked in, another set of voices who were also saying, Jesus is Lord. But Jewish voices who said both Jesus is Lord, but that if you're going to be part of his people, the only way you can be confident of being part of his people or having, as we put it last week, having a seat at Jesus' table of welcome is to subscribe in total to all that the Mosaic law has for you. It's the only way. Those are the preconditions for having any confidence that your faith in Jesus has any Consequence on your destiny. And so, they've come to believe this other voice. The Galatians, rather than trust what they had first heard, they have come to believe that, yes, Jesus has come in the flesh. And yes, he dies as a criminal and rises as a king. And yes, he is pardoned and reconciled man to humanity, to God. And yet now they are thinking that their only confidence that they belong to Jesus is just how well they are measuring up to that law that Jesus had come to clarify and to uphold and to fulfill. 
And you know, at some intuitive sense, if we're the church in Galatia and we hear people come in there and say, look, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but if you're not willing to give yourself entirely, if you're, if you're not, if you're not going to subscribe to the fullness of all that he asks of you, then you probably should not be at all confident that, that he finds you attractive or, or delights in. We, we sort of get that because everything else in our lives is really predicated upon how well are you doing. Some of you got report cards this week. So I'm told. And some of you, your heart soared because the report card said everything you hoped it would. And for others of you, the report card was, well, maybe not as much as you hoped for. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to do well. There's nothing wrong with excelling. There's nothing wrong with hoping to do better in the future. But when you start to think that your worth is determined by what's on that page, oh, honey, you've started to misunderstand what that report card is really about. You've started to think that for the only way that you can feel okay, the only way for you to be considered good in the eyes of yourself or the universe or your parents is for you to be perfect. Anybody ever see Saving Private Ryan? You know that story. You know that awful story. It's a wonderful story and an awful story because how many countless lives, how many, 12 guys go out on one, one mission to find this one young kid whose brothers had already been killed in action and they risk their lives and many of them die just to bring that one kid home alone and there Tom Hanks' character dies with blood gurgling out through his lungs saying to Private Ryan, earn this. Earn this. The sacrifice we have made for you is immeasurable. Now live up to it. And that's how most of us feel most of the time. Especially when we hear people say, look what Jesus has done for you. And that's what the Galatian churches are hearing. But the way that you might be confident in who Jesus is to you is for you to earn what he has done for you. And Paul is saying, that's the Clorox. Don't drink the Clorox. You can't earn it. You may only come to him in one way, and that is with your weakness. You may only come to Jesus in one way, and that is with an acknowledgement that you have nothing, nothing to commend you to him. Only by seeing yourself as weak, only by seeing yourself as incapable of receiving his mercy apart from his grace, can you ever know that grace. And that, friends and welcome guests, is to walk in the way of maturity. To see it that way. Now, let me tease that out for you. What do I mean the way of maturity? Um, Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions there early in chapter 3, both of which have to do with the Spirit. And so you heard him say, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he asks, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, wait a minute. We, Paul, you've been talking about uh, circumcision and food, and justification, and all of a sudden you're talking about the Holy Spirit. How about a little warning? Maybe you're thinking the same thing. Paul is known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. 
he has a great deal to say to us about the Holy Spirit. And it, it really is crucial to understand what is the Spirit up to here. And, and he really launches in to an explanation of what the Holy Spirit is up to here. And, and what we heard in our passage is essentially two things from Paul's mouth about who the Holy Spirit is. One, when you come having to trust in Christ, God imparts a part of himself. And even my language fails me. It's, it's actually what y'all did better than what I just did. God gives a measure of himself and, and imparts it to us that that spirit dwells within. Which is actually a consequence of what the spirit has already done in our hearts. No one believes by their own sheer will of themselves. That it is something that the, the, the Holy Spirit has done in us to persuade us that in fact Jesus is Lord. And therefore, when that happens, God, as a gift unto us, gives us a part of himself that we might know him and trust him, and be able to call out to him, Abba, Father, and do so with a certain measure of confidence, if only tenderness. Um, That's huge. Uh, That is a huge plot point. Because to say that the Spirit comes unto us through our trust in Christ is, is actually the culmination of a large subtext of the whole doctrine of the Bible. Um, Earlier you heard in the Old Testament reading from Scotty P. from Joel chapter 2, That was an anticipation. It was a prophetic word. A prophetic word that said God's presence would in time come in a way that it had not before. And men and women would proclaim the Lord's work in and of themselves, having been persuaded by the God's goodness. And and that's what Joel is coming forth to say to us. And that's not just what came out of the mouth of Joel. You read the, the, the prophecy of Jeremiah, you read the book of Ezekiel, all of them are saying that the Spirit would write God's law upon the heart, that there would be a, a dramatic shift, as it were, that, that what had instructed the heart, i.e. the law, would now come to be impressed upon that heart, and that heart would become to be persuaded of in a way and to a degree that it had not yet before. And so what Paul was telling us is this, what Joel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others of the prophets and even reaching far back, even earlier than that, are all trying to say to us is that Jesus is, ta-da, the culmination of that expectation. And those who have come to trust in him have that spirit then in them. That's the first thing Paul is telling us about the spirit. The second is this. It is... Neither receiving the Spirit or being refined by that Spirit will ever be predicated on anything other than trusting in the grace of God to be made his child. Neither receiving the Spirit nor ever being changed by that Spirit will ever be predicated on anything other than trusting that you were made his By grace alone. So when you hear what Paul is asking in verses 2 and verses 5 about the Spirit, would this Spirit, would it, would it come unto us and work because we, we proved our ability to merit God's acceptance and therefore the Holy Spirit is kind of like our reward for that? Paul is saying no. You misunderstand how you receive the Spirit or upon what basis you receive the Spirit. If people are asking, is our response, is it our obedience that makes us acceptable to God, is that how we receive the Spirit? Paul is saying, no. 
That's not how you receive the Spirit. That's not how you're changing the Spirit. Now, here's, here's where the distinction may sound a little bit confusing. Is Paul saying that God is unconcerned with our obedience? Is that what he's saying? Patently, no. Patently, no. Paul is talking about a motive for your obedience. And there are motives that are both subtle in their difference, but which could not be more starkly opposed to one another. Do you obey because you think by your obedience you gain his favor? Or do you obey because he has already made you favorable unto him? Two very different motives. Do you think God acts in sort of a quid pro quo matter? That so long as you show yourself worthy of his kindness, then it's only that way that you will ever be invited to a seat at his table. Two very different motives with starkly different rationales. Do you act in such a way that you think you can kind of put God in your debt? Look, I have done this for you and now you owe me. Or do you obey unto the Lord because you believe you are in his debt infinitely and you could never pay him back if you tried? Two very different motives. Imagine imagine um, another married couple. Uh, this time, there's no words between them, but imagine the, the wife really put together, really showing forth all of her elegance and her beauty in which her husband delights. And she kind of leaves it all put together as they go to bed each night. The lights go out. And then when she is sure that the husband is asleep, she gets up, goes to the bathroom, and then takes all that stuff off and puts on the cold cream and puts her hair up in curlers so that she looks like, oh my, um, different, shall we say, right? And then she quietly crawls back into bed. But she sets her alarm for about 4.45 in the morning. So that when that alarm goes off, Silently, she quietly gets up from her bed, goes back to the bathroom, takes the curlers out, removes the cold cream, puts all of the makeup on. She looks splendid once more and then crawls back into bed quietly such that when her husband wakes up about 5.45 and 6, he looks at her and he goes, Honey, you look beautiful. And she goes, Oh, stop it. (laughs) What's with that? It's with the belief that that husband will only delight in her if she has, if she bespeaks a certain perfection in herself. That's a tyranny. And that's a way we can all come to the Lord. To think he will only think of us well and only think of our union as, as only as solid as the extent to which he delights in everything that we do. That's not the way of maturity. That's a way of anxiety. That's a profound way of anxiety. You can live like that, and it's not the way of maturity. God did not send his son to die for you in order to exact an obedience from you like you're a sweatshop worker who's oppressed. God sent his son to die for you that you might obey out of delight unto him. Now, I had the privilege of sitting with the high school guys on Wednesday night with Gerg and the others. And they were talking about how, you know, what is it like to really trust God and to believe him and to want to read your Bible and to want to pray. And I just sort of um, interjected, uh, maybe rudely, I said, do you think your parents love you with the same intensity all the time? And they quickly said, nope, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, not at all, nope. And I said, you know what, you're absolutely right. 
Do they love you? Sure. Do they feel that same intensity of love all the time? No. They'd probably, as Scotty Smith likes to say sometimes, sell you for a Diet Coke. And I use that illustration if only to say to these high school guys and to all of you, do you think you will always feel the same intensity of love for the Lord as you do in every given moment? Of course not. Is your obedience predicated upon whether you always feel that same sort of delight? No. But when we love somebody, we obey them sometimes even when we don't feel like it. And that is the obedience to which he calls us, an obedience that believes that we don't have to put all our makeup on and make ourselves look pretty before he'll ever think of us as his. That's the way of maturity. And again, that, that kind of resonates with the way our human hearts. We, we really don't want to be in relationships with people where we feel like they will only love us if they're really liking us in any given moment. But there's another reason for why faith alone obeys right that I think speaks to not just the way our hearts are wired, but the way the Bible tells its story. There is the way of maturity, But there's also the way of consistency. Let me see if I can unpack that for you. Can you understand why Paul would be so controversial in the ears of the churches of Galatia? Why he might be so counterintuitive to even the way that you think, you and I think? Because when he is saying that your obedience to the law is not what makes you belong to God. Can you understand why we might think that that makes us wonder, then why, why did God give the law at all? Like, why didn't he just sort of dispense with that? Or why didn't he just sort of leave that part out and just sort of say, hey, we all just love each other here. You'll have to stay tuned because that's the sermon text for next week. Paul is saying, I want you to understand the way of maturity through the lens of the way of consistency by seeing the whole storyline of how God has worked to understand why this way of maturity has grounding in the Bible storyline. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, all of this talk of being set right with God by faith in God's Son, that's, it's unique in a way, right? Because nobody saw Jesus coming in the way quite that he did. They, they saw a prophet coming. They saw one who would come as a king of David, but they never imagined God coming in the flesh, much less dying. So in that sense, he's unique. In any number of reasons, he's unique. But this whole idea of being set right Based upon faith, that's not a new phenomenon. That's not a new wrinkle in the game. God's promise to Abraham, Paul invokes to make that point. Why Abraham? He makes a promise. God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. You may have heard of that. I'm going to bless a nation. I'm going to make a nation through you. And I'm going to bless that nation. And through you, a new nation, you're going to bless all nations. That's My promise. And so God does that. He births the nations through him. And that promise comes into Abraham, and that's the promise of God. And when 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 Abraham hears that and is persuaded by that, in Genesis 15 it says, Abraham believed God. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness which is just shorthand for saying Abraham believed, and in that moment, Abraham and God were forever united. Forever united. Faith in the promise that God had made unto Abraham united Abraham unto God and to the God of promise. Abraham would stumble. He would fail. 
he would doubt. He would connive. He would take matters into his own hands, thinking that he could do better than what God had planned. But there was never a question about whether Abraham belonged to God. Why? Because he believed in the promise. By faith in that promise, God's blessing would come to Gentiles. Because that promise of blessing is a blessing to Abraham and a blessing through Abraham. This is why Paul goes to all the trouble about invoking the ancient memory of Abraham. Yes, it's to remind the Galatians of God's interest in all the nations, not just Israel. And you get that from the very beginning of the book of Genesis. But the bigger reason why Paul is invoking Abraham's memory is to make this point. That Abraham is an example of how faith in God's gracious promise is what sets one right with God. Full stop. And Jesus is the full flourishing of that promise. The promise that God makes to Abraham, which we'll tease out here in a couple more weeks when we get towards the end of chapter 3, speak of the seed of Abraham. That seed actually is fully flowered in Jesus. And therefore, Paul is only making this point. Faith alone obeys the right because that's just the way of consistency in the Scripture. It's not novel. He's not bringing that up to sort of rescue the Old Testament from its fearsomeness. He's out to say, no, there's a thread. And this thread you should see. And this thread you should rest in. Now, again, we have to ask this question. Did Abraham ever demonstrate his faith by his faithfulness unto God? Duh. Of course he did. He left everything that was familiar. He followed the call. He obeyed. He was faithful. Faith in that promise inspired faithfulness, aligned to it. Faith alone obeys. All right. But here's where it gets a little tricky. If you're familiar with your Old Testament at all, does God ever make promises of blessing and cursing on the basis of obedience? Yes. He has. He did. You, you, can't, you can't massage any of those passages out of the way not to see that sort of cause-effect relationship. So how, how can Paul be so confident that it's by faith alone that one obeys a right? How can Paul be so confident that simply by trusting in the promise is what sets you right with God? That, that's an important question, and that gets me to the last point. Because yes... Faith alone obeys the right because it's the way of maturity according to the human heart and according to what he's promised us in Jesus and the Spirit. Faith alone obeys the right because it's the way of consistency because that's how it's been done from time immemorial. But the third reason why this fits, why faith alone obeys the right is because it's the only way of escape. What do I mean by that? I I put the word escape in quotes, but not to diminish its significance or its potency. Um, Paul is clearly defiant in the way he sees the Galatians and what trajectory they were on, right? If Why is he so defiant? As I've already said before, it's because if you put your actions at the center of your case for being God's child, you have invited yourself into a life of anxiety. You have made yourself like that woman 
who puts off on the cold cream at 12 o'clock and gets up at 5 o'clock to take it all off again. You have invited yourself into a life of anxiety. And that's why in Paul's heart there is anguish. Because to believe that you can make your efforts, your case for being his, is actually to consign yourself to a curse. A curse, and even though a curse is an old word, you still get it. Because everybody on Twitter is still using it. (laughs) Because everybody that's different from them or believes something wrong in their estimation, eventually, if they get angry enough, are going to say that they're accursed. Or that they should be in so many words. And so at the last half of this passage... Paul rattles off all these Old Testament passages from Habakkuk, from Deuteronomy. And he's there to say that there is a cause-effect relationship between obedience and blessing and between disobedience and cursing. Why did Israel go into exile? Not because God was bored, but because Israel had been disobedient. And what would it take for Israel to be restored from their exile back into a new world of freedom. Why? It would be their repentance. There's a cause-effect relationship. So, again, doesn't that fly in the face of everything we've heard Paul say again? Why is it not faith alone that obeys the right? Shouldn't there be a little bit of fear mixed in there? A little fear that he might sort of pull the carpet out from underneath you? Doesn't obedience matter? Of course it does. Stay tuned for the last third of the whole letter to the Church of Galatia. It's all about what do we do in response. But all of those texts in the Old Testament and all of this language about the curse is here to draw one conclusion for all of these Galatians and all of you, and it's this. Apart from the grace of God, we're all doomed. Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California several years ago. He was a Christian. And one time, um, a pastor asked him the question, do you believe in total depravity? Which, if you are familiar with the Reformed tradition, you've heard the idea that uh, one, one, one pillar upon which our tradition holds to is that um, we are totally depraved. Not absolutely, we're not as bad as we could be, but that every part of us is compromised. Every part of us is compromised. And so when that pastor asked Dallas Willard, do you believe in total depravity? He said, I believe in sufficient depravity. And the pastor said, ah, ha, ha, don't you like to be different? What does that mean? And Dallas Willard said this, I believe that if we enter into his presence and see the face of God, none of us will be able to say that we merited that privilege. That this love can't be earned. That no amount of obedience will ever make one right. If the law brings a curse to those who fail to follow it, and none of us follow it fully, then what follows? It's not blessing if you make your obedience the basis for your seat at God's table. If God ceases to be just, he ceases to be God. And that's the point as Paul is trying to drive home. None of us lives up to the standards of the law. And you know what? Some of you in this room may 
you're here, you're listening, you have no real belief in God, your, your version of belief is just to, to, to just even be in this room, and, and I am delighted that you're here. And you may think that the whole law of God is just sort of over the top, and it's an obsolete thing, and, and who would ever want to live by that, and I don't even try, so I'm not even going to. But everybody has a law unto themselves. Everybody has a set of beliefs that you think, that's, that's the good. And I'm here to say that whatever your belief is and whatever your law, you don't even live up to that. And none of us do. Uh, Paul Zoll is sort of a snarky Episcopal pastor up in um, New England who said this, the law is not up to the task it sets for itself. If the law says jump, I sit. If it says run, I walk. If it says honor your father and mother, I move to Portland. If it says, do not covet, I spend all day on the home shopping channel. That the law itself, just the words on the page, are incapable of creating in you the heart that it intends for you. And that's no deficiency in the law. That's a reflection of who we are in our hearts. And Paul is saying, if you are looking to your own effort to live by that law, you have consigned yourself to a curse. Because God will be just. And if God ceases to be just, he ceases to be God. And therefore, if we don't live up to his or even our own standard of what is just, what then? What is our destiny? What is our hope? What indeed? And Paul offers the answer to our very deep and existential question. What of it? And his answer is this. What if in God fulfilling his justice at the same time exerts his mercy. What if he does his justice and his mercy at the very same time? What if there was something or someone who could satisfy the curse upon us for all that we are and all that we've done at the same time that we were being exonerated from that curse? There is one who did that, and Jesus is that one. Jesus becomes our curse. Jesus becomes our way of escape. And therefore, faith alone obeys a right when you and I believe that Jesus is the one who takes upon the curse for us. Such that even when we fail that law, he looks to us and says, Oh child, you have little faith. Why didn't you believe? Oh little child. Folks, life is full of referendums. Your report card, your job, your parenting, in politics, you, you know that we are all susceptible to thinking over and over again or asking yourself over and over again, did I hit the mark? Did I, did I make the grade? Did I excel? Did I esteem myself? Did I satisfy the expectations that were laid upon me? Look, the Bible is not unaccustomed to our striving for an aspiration. It just doesn't make the love of God what you're striving for. Because faith alone obeys a right. God is not insisting that every night before you go to bed, do I belong to you? Is your love real and abiding? 
God does not have you, metaphorically speaking, make yourself look pretty at every moment in order to know or to verify to him or to yourself that in fact you are his. Here's the deal. Do you think God loves you just because you're you? If you think that, then you have to look at the cross and the suffering that the son endured and wonder if he could just love you because you're you, why did Jesus go to all the trouble? But in the same breath, if you think that God could never love you, that you are unlovable, I ask you the same question. Can you look at the cross and conclude that his love could not even love the likes of you? He is the one to remind us that we are his. So that you and I might have faith that we are his. So that you and I might finally obey as one who is his. Let's pray. Oh, would you free us unto that truth. Free us unto the knowledge that we do belong to you. That though we take great courage and find great sustenance in belonging to so many others that you've given unto us, that somehow your love would break through and that we would know it's true. And then in freeing us to that truth, would you also then free us to give ourselves unto you without a second thought? When it hurts, when it makes no sense, when every fiber of our being would choose not to love or to forgive or to extend or to impoverish ourselves for the sake of another, would you free us unto that obedience so that we might again Live out what it means to be free in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.